This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the Basic Podcast. This is a short bonus podcast following up the amazing episode on COPD from Drs. Tim Peck, Colby Redfield, and the famous Peter Rosen. After the episode was published, there was some great conversation on Twitter about some things that were said about the use of high-flow oxygen in COPD. Tim and Colby were gracious enough to make a follow-up podcast to explain their thinking on this and provide some literature to help you best care for your patients. I don't want to steal their thunder, but I do want to emphasize the big overriding theme here. Never withhold oxygen from a critically ill hypoxic patient with COPD in the first 30 to 60 minutes of resuscitation. If the patient comes in with a SAT of 50%, looks cyanotic, and is working to breathe, then they need high-flow oxygen and lots of it to get their oxygen level up. However, if you get the patient stabilized and they are doing better and breathing easier, this is where you want to titrate down the oxygen to a SAT between 88 and 92%. What was said in the original podcast was not meant to be a prohibition on high-flow oxygen during the initial resuscitation, just a caution to not let the patient ride on high-flow oxygen with a SAT of 100% for a long time after they are better. Before we get started, I still have to say this podcast doesn't represent the views and opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Fort Hood Bus Command. With that said, let's get started with the COPD follow-up podcast by Drs. Tim Peck and Colby Redfield, with some more wisdom at the end from Peter Rosen. There's only four or five ways you can die. That's a death spire. And a rectal. Very aggressive intern. You'll kill somebody. They're just a little fatter than the intern. Their lungs are still garbage. So tell me when to bite the bullet and give the goddamn drug. Brain, don't worry. Life is better than you think. We need straightforward questions and straightforward answers. Hi, everybody from EM Basic. It's Colby Redfield, and I am here again with Tim Peck from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Harvard Affiliated Emergency Medicine Residency. Our last podcast generated some great discussions on the use of oxygen and COPD exacerbation. Oxygen is a drug, like any other medication. And numerous studies have shown how harmful it could be if used improperly. Patients that may benefit from judicious use of O2 include traumatic brain injury patients, acute myocardial infarction patients, and COPDers. In our previous podcast, we talked about how managing oxygen saturation is a doctor's responsibility, and how too much oxygen can be harmful to your patient. When a patient is sick, there's little time to think about a patient's pathophysiology and the mechanism of action of the drugs you will treat your patient with. Therefore, it is important to study and think outside the ED about the complex mechanisms that drive a patient's illness so that you can make a quick and confident decision while inside the emergency department. Treating COPD exacerbations with enough oxygen to bring the O2 saturation up to 100% can be harmful. Use of high-flow oxygen during acute COPD exacerbation has been associated with increases in mortality, length of stay, requirement for ventilation, and admission to the ICU. On the other hand, titrated oxygen has been associated with less acidosis and reduced mortality. With most things in life, it's kind of like the Goldilocks principle. Not too much, not too little, but just the right amount of oxygen. The question is why too much oxygen is a bad thing. Is it hypoxic drive, which we talked about in our recent podcast, or is it due to other mechanisms like the Haldane effect and a VQ mismatch? 
Every med student is taught that patients with COPD depend on low oxygen levels to keep their respiratory drive up and allow them to blow CO2 off. If you blast them with oxygen, you lower their drive to breathe, and the patient is unable to get rid of CO2. For many years, this was thought to be the only reason for this buildup of CO2, but in reality, hypoxic respiratory drive might only account for a small percentage of your drive, the rest coming from CO2. The Haldane effect may be another reason why CO2 increases. When you put the patient on oxygen, their plasma oxygen tension increases. This causes hemoglobin to drop the CO2 and bind oxygen instead, in turn causing a greater partial pressure of CO2 to build up in the serum. Additional cause of increased plasma CO2 may be reversal of hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. COPD lungs have hypoxic portions that are vasoconstricted to match ventilation and perfusion. When they are blasted with oxygen and cause hyperoxia, vasodilation occurs in those areas which leads to a VQ mismatch. When you have a VQ mismatch, you have increased dead space in the lung, which causes an increase of plasma CO2. Then it could just be that paying closer attention to your patient yields better outcomes, which is the argument that's been floated to say at least partially why code strokes and sepsis bundles are effective. There are multiple reasons why too much oxygen is a bad thing in COPD. Most likely all of the above play a part in the bad outcomes of patients. So next time you have a COPD exacerbation, titrate that oxygen to maintain their oxygen saturations to 88 to 92%. It's a cheap treatment with proven outcomes that will help your patient. We've put all of these resources into one collection on iClickEM. Click on the link on the EM Basic blog post for this podcast or email me at tim at iclickem.com, and I'll share the collection with you. I hope you all enjoyed this mini-podcast. Thanks again to Steve Carroll for giving us the opportunity to be on EM Basic. Have a great day. Here's five minutes with Peter Rosen to finish off the podcast. I became a doctor because I wanted to know what to do when things went wrong acutely. And if that doesn't define emergency medicine, I don't know what does. And I think one of the most satisfying aspects of it is the feeling that now I do know. And I don't think that's going to change. The way we pay for medicine, the way we get supported by administration, the number of complex protocols and policies that we have to live under, those are probably only going to get worse as our entire society becomes more bureaucratized. But the basic equation of a patient getting ill, needing help, and being able to get that help from a skilled emergency physician is never going to go away. Subspecialties of emergency medicine are going to continue to evolve. We are still the only group in medicine that is willing to work 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and we're there when you need us, and that isn't going to change. It took me many years to learn that a two-minute phone call was enough to compensate for the fact that I had to break a dinner date or disappoint my wife about going out to the movies or even one of my kids that I had planned to go away with wasn't going to happen. But if you just say, here, this is what happened, and I'm sorry, but that's part of my world, uh, they understand, and, and it uh, makes a great deal of difference. 
And I think that the most important thing to remember is you get your loving at home, so leave some love at home. Remember the purpose of a chart. It is to recognize what's happening today, what you did for it, and what you expect to happen. So the most important part of the chart is the chief complaint and the present illness and your decision making. Obviously, if there are pertinent physical findings, you want to know what they are. And obviously, you have to leave a record of what your diagnostics are. But the most important record you need to leave is what you're thinking. And that doesn't require a novel. It can be done in a couple of sentences. The last thing the chart supplies is a record that you interacted with the patient. So when you see the patient more than once, make a note that you saw the patient again and, and, and why and what, what has differed. I, I think charting is always a burden, but it doesn't need to be as hard as some people make it. And it shouldn't be an exercise in futility, which is trying to outguess the plaintiff bar if there's a bad outcome, because you can't. So if you want to outguess the plaintiff bar, have a good outcome, and the way to do that is to remember what your chart is for. Your discharge instructions are a set of orders that you want the patient to follow after they go home, and make sure that they make sense and that they are easy to understand and to follow. Don't tell a patient that he should see his doctor right away because, A, it's impossible. And, and if you really want him to see his doctor right away, then make him come back to the emergency department and you see him. So I, th I think that charting is common sense. It is terseness, not brevity. And it is focused on what really is important for that patient's visit. What are the chief complaints I hate? And the ones that suggest somatization are the ones that really make me miserable. <laughs> because the patient wants something that really has got nothing to do with the missions of medicine. And while I now understand that and know how to deal with it, it's not why I became a doctor and it doesn't provide me with any sense of fulfillment.